it's time for the Learning Value Podcast. Today's going to be an interesting episode. We are in our ranting, ranty, rant mode. So we'll see where this episode goes. Over to you, Laura. <laughs> yeah, so this one's a little bit different, John, because I've just, there's so many questions I have. And I, I think for those of you that are listening, this is more of a call to action and a call and a, a request for help because we want to learn in this space. And so what I started thinking about over the last few weeks, as I've started to really pay attention to the amount of stress that people are under, the, the, the level of stress and the consistency over time with which we're experiencing that stress. Now, some people I'm sure are quite joyful, quite happy, quite content. And I would offer that that's not the 80%. It's more likely that it's the 20%. We're all experiencing a different, differing levels of stress and it's continuous over a period of months. And so I just get curious about things like, okay, so we're in the learning and development space and we want people to learn. So what's the impact of long-term stress distress, not ustress, on our ability to learn. What does that impact in terms of our high, higher level thinking and our ability to be rational, logical, and be able to be, think critically? What does that do to being able to access experiences that we can bring into learning, which is primarily how adults learn, we learn by making references back in our history and go, oh yeah, I kind of have a sense of that. Yes, I can bring this forward into this current experience that you're giving me. And so, yeah, I just have a ton of questions about it. And I also have this thing around, so what does cognitive load have to do with it? And I've been noticing that people are working ridiculously hard. Like, oh no, you're absolutely right. You're right that one of the things about uh, this time of code and everything like that is people are under more stress, and uh, the ones who are working um, are thankful to have jobs, of course. Mm -hmm. But the level of stress that they're under to be able to continue to perform while they're sort of underneath this umbrella of the whole world is going into lockdown, the whole world is going into COVID. It's uh, it's it has to have an impact on learning. It has to have an Im impact on behavior. And of course, we're trying to drive the impact on behavior. That's what the whole lockdown is about. Um, I do honestly think that in times of stress where the learning will alleviate the stress, I think we're super motivated for that. So mm -hmm. if we, you and I got dropped off of a, a crashed airplane and we had to learn how to fish and how to live or something like that, we'd be very motivated. We would certainly yes. um, probably- We'd figure it out figure it out as fast as possible because you got to eat, you got to eat, you got to live, you got to find shelter and the basics and things like that. What about this sort of overarching just kind of shadow that's kind of cast over everything and impacting everybody's lives? There has to be some kind of an impact on learning. And I believe that it is the cognitive load, like you say. People just can't quite carry as much. When they're carrying that emotional burden, it takes up space. It takes up psychic space. It takes up energy. It takes up whatever you want to talk, however you want to quantify it. But I think it does kind of take up space. So people's attention spans might be a little shorter, or maybe they get cranky faster. I do think there has to be an impact. Yeah. And can you break it down for me? Like, how do you understand cognitive load? Because this is something that's been like running over in my head for over a week now. Ah, okay. Um, Let's answer your question with a question, which I know people love. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you went there, John. Thank you. That's just do, what I need. Do you know why phone numbers are seven digits? I have no idea. It's essentially because the human brain only has enough, let's call it RAM. 
let's call it capacity, to really hold on to seven ideas at the same time. You can really only hold seven things in the front of your brain at a given time, and you kind of switch between them. <laughs> and one of the reasons I know this is because back when I was a high school teacher and we were doing some kind of behavioral therapy, one mm -hmm. of the things, one of the strategies they would teach kids for dealing with nightmares is to mm. try and think about eight or nine good things. Think about mm. nine things you did on your vacation to Disneyland last year or something like that. And because you sort of push all the bad thoughts out with the good thoughts, then the person can go to sleep. And yes, it comes back in, but then you train the brain to push them out and that type of thing, and you get the reward cycle and everything else. Right. So there's only a limited number of things that people can really keep in their head at a given time. Yeah. And it's also one of the reasons why good learning shouldn't have more than seven objectives. And I don't care if your course is two years long. You really can't do more than seven things at a time, and you can't do them well. So with this limited limited amount of capacity that you have, mm -hmm. you can focus on your work, you can focus on things that are important to you and everything else, but every once in a while there's going to be that COVID thing that drops in, and then when it gets in there, it kind of connects to the other learnings that are associated with it, and it can be this cascade through your entire brain of this mm -hmm. negativity. So there's mm -hmm. a certain amount of cognitive load, and it gets taken up by something that sometimes takes up a bigger piece, and sometimes it takes a smaller piece, and sometimes it's in the background, and then you see it on the news and then you hear it on the radio and then you see it on the streets and then you see people protest and you see masks it gets reinforced so that piece gets a little bit bigger and you really have to be aware of uh, of your own cognitive load and how much of your energy is being given to that mm -hmm. activity yes. yeah now if it's only so people could see these zooms with my hand gestures <laughs> He devil, right? It's like we're doing a podcast recording. And just so you know, John is very animated and it's fantastic. Um, I get to enjoy all of it. You just get to listen as he's being animated. So I'm going to take it back to a couple of examples. And I've just noticed this in myself. And I also had a conversation with someone this week because learning is occurring at all times. Like I, and I think you and I share this perspective that learning is not just formal training that's structured with objectives, but it's also the development we get on the job. And so I've just been noticing a couple of things about myself. One of them is that I can't hold things in my head this week. So everything has to get written down. And normally I'm like, I'm quite adaptive, not to be braggy because that's not where I'm coming from. It's just I can kind of hold a lot and then it's just how my brain works and I can interconnect things and I just make sense of it and then I figure it out. Ta-da! But lately, I've been needing to write everything down. If it doesn't land in my calendar, it will not get done. It's not a, maybe it'll get done. No, no, it <laughs> won't get done. Um, and then I've, I was talking to someone, so that's the first observation, and this person's in a developmental role. Um, and I have the privilege and honor of being able to support them. I'm very, very grateful for that opportunity. And that person was looking at their to-do list this week. And before I called, they were like, I don't know what to start on first. It's all work that they know how to do. It's they couldn't organize and structure their mind to get an action plan in place to get it done. And so, and this person's in a developmental role. So they are always in the learning process. They are literally like constantly being pushed into a place of development and into a place of constant learning. And so as soon as we had that conversation and I did a little bit of digging, it was like, okay, so you're done. Like you need to step back. 
back because mm -hmm. you can't process like you're you're actually being told just by looking at that list and not knowing how to approach it that you need to let other people help you and then step back like take time away give your brain a break mm -hmm. and i wonder if that's something that other people are seeing so if people are listening right now i am curious if that's a theme that you're starting to see just purely observationally and i wonder if you're seeing it in yourself like because we're all to some degree learning mm. so how is this acting upon us and you know what does self-awareness have to do with us being able to learn and what does self-awareness have to do for those of us that are teachers in being able to teach? Mm -hmm. Like those are two questions that I have. And I guess, you know, any thoughts or opinions from where you sit? You know, it's interesting when you talked about um, your contact who has like the big list of things to do. And mm -hmm. I know that people get overwhelmed by the amount of things on their to-do list. Mm -hmm. And a to-do list does a lot of things. It reminds you of what's going on. It's a physical reminder that something has to get done. And then when you give that little check mark, people feel good. You've got mm -hmm. something done. There is a uh, there is a brilliant YouTube video. Uh, I believe it's a retired U.S. admiral who says the most important thing you can do every day is make your bed. Yes, I love that one. Yeah, the first thing you do is you make the bed. You get something done. You accomplish it. You sit back. You look at it. You're proud of it. The endorphins in your brain start to reinforce that. Hey, I've done something that feels good. Behavior that can yeah. follow you through the entire day. So you need to. It absolutely needs to do those types of things and build yourself a routine. Um, but when the list gets too big, you get lost in the list. And I've actually had to go in to help people who've had the big list and everything. And it's like, okay, well, what's the delay? And you ask them the question. Um, it's and I think it's a human nature thing. I think when there's too much going on, your brain just kind of goes, and there's a little bit of a short circuit. And yeah. it's like, you got to take a break. You got to take a break. You know, there's laws in place. You are not allowed to work more than five hours at a time without a half an hour break because of the mental health implications of it. And how many people do you know who just work through their lunch at their desk and keep on plowing through and everything like that or work through their breaks because they've got something to do. It's not healthy. It's not good for your brain. You got to give your brain a break. And I think that is about the only way you're going to get past that. I have so much to do that I can't do anything mindset. Yeah. What I heard in what you just said actually pointed to that the, the freeze response was getting activated. Mm -hmm. Right. So it really is their higher level thinking is now taken over by their medulla oblongata. They're in reaction. So it's mm -hmm. flight, fight or freeze. And it's impacting their ability to take action. And, you know, I have to like what's there for me is, you know, if we're learners and educators out there in the world, you know, giving ourselves a bit of a break like mm -hmm. pulling it's okay to pull back to get perspective to step away that could be as simple as you know you're doing a lesson through Udemy or you're you know studying for your MBA or you know you're working on a training program for an enterprise we can't be so in it that we lose our perspective of it mm -hmm. and I just mm -hmm. yeah yeah, you know, people live, they get so head down on something, they get um, so focused on something that they do lose perspective. And when you lose perspective on things, then you start to disconnect with everything else besides what you're doing. And that's never going to be a good thing when you're building or taking training. So you need to take the time and take the break to do it. Um, one of the things that I've always done when I can feel myself 
getting into that tizzy mindset where everything is going on. I'm all right. I've been there, I'm man. Overwhelmed, and I got this to do, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do, and I got to go home, and I got to make the dinner, and I got to get the groceries, I got to do the laundry, I got to all these other things like that. And yes. That's what it gets in my head. Um, I actually have a little sticker on top of my laptop with the letters W I N, and it's not because I'm super competitive. It's just basically what's important now. Hmm. There was a. Uh, one of the crazy Canucks ski team in the 1980s had this on his skis and it was about what's important now. And I sat through his conference presentation and still retained that one little piece of it because he basically said, if you take a breath and think, what's the most important thing that I can do right now? What's the most impactful thing that I can do? What is something that absolutely needs to get done? Then I can focus on that and do that and nothing else. And one of the key pieces uh, of the learning for me with that what's important now is I set a timer for 20 minutes for myself. So I set myself a little time block that says, I know that the adult human attention span is kind of about 20 minutes or something like that. So I allow myself a 20 minute block where I say, I'm gonna shut down everything else. I'm gonna close the office door. I'm gonna put headphones on. I'm gonna be completely focused on one thing for 20 minutes and get as much done as I can. And sometimes that's enough to just remove the block. So mm -hmm. you've got the mental block. Okay, I've got all these things. I have 86 things on my to-do list. I don't know where to begin. And I just kind of say, what's the most important one? 20 minutes of dedicated time. That really landed with me, what's important now. And I, I really want to reinforce that that 20 minute period mm -hmm. is super important for learners. And then it becomes so much more important for learning designers and developers that we're thinking in terms of how people learn. And I think you've said it in our first podcast, it's like, we've got to make things short and consumable. Mm -hmm. And I think even more so now. Yeah, so I think there's a call there. Um, you know, for those of you that maybe have research in this area can talk um, a little bit more about cognitive load and um, the impact of distress on our ability to learn and to teach to those learners. You know, how do we work through those pieces with them? How do we design learning programs thoughtfully with that in mind? How do we consider um, that 20 minute window and build learning materials that actually and resources that speak to that consumable um, learning, especially for those people that are in the condition that we're all in right now, which is just a level of volatility that in our lifetime, so I'm speaking, you know, I'm in my 40s, but, you know, in my lifetime, I've never known anything like this. I don't have anything to link this to. There is no other thing. I don't think anybody really has, in living memory anyways, a frame of reference for this type of activity. You can see those pictures of the Spanish flu and IBC pictures of the kids in schools at that time who had the mask on their faces and it's like, things haven't really changed that much in a hundred years since it happened. Yeah. And, you know, this wasn't meant to be a super long podcast because it really is a call versus a tell. Mm -hmm. And it's a place to look. So for those people that are listening and have an interest and want to have a conversation about it from a learner experience, from a learning design experience, you know, what's happening out there um, in this world of learning that you're seeing that's helping us, you know, take on the understanding that people are in distress and that there is an impact on their ability to learn, to work, to be in the world, <clears throat> and what do we, as the people that are in the learning and development space, what can we do about it? Hmm. 
How can we show up in conversations with leadership, with businesses, with schools, so that we're actually entering into it? I, I believe personally, John, and like I'm super opinionated and you know that, but I believe we could enter into it like with a lot of compassion and understanding, like build for the future for sure, but what are you trying to achieve? And is it actually gonna make the impact that you want given the context of our world, our province, our city, our towns? You know, it's, it is an interesting topic and it actually aligns with the topic of my rant and my, my rant is probably going to be rambling. So try and help me keep on track. If you can, okay. because you never know where it's going to end up, but you know, when it comes right down to it, learning as a profession is, it hasn't really, it's not really considered a profession when it comes right down to it. I mean, there are, there's probably seven different designations that I've seen about learning, but it's not the kind of thing that you have to say, oh, we have a legal problem, we need a lawyer for that. Or we have a very specific accounting problem, we need an accountant for that. We, we, we have a learning problem, well, you know what, we can get communications to look at that, they might be able to figure it out. Or, you know, the guys in IT, they do tech training, they can probably figure it out too. So we don't get treated like for a profession. Um, and you know it's kind of our own fault. I think it's our own fault. And I'm um, and it's Same one of those things, we don't behave like professionals do when you're an accountant or a lawyer or something like that. You really aren't allowed to badmouth other people in their profession. You respect them enough. It's part of your oath. It's part of your shared experience and that kind of thing. How many times has a new learning person come into a situation and said, "Oh, everything that other person did is crap. That's terrible. Here, let me show you how it's really done." I've seen that probably four or five times. I've seen learning professionals come in and bash other people's work enough times that I feel like I have to say something about it. Mm. Um, there are also people in the learning profession who have discovered that it's kind of a nice, quiet little place where you can put your head down and not really produce that much and uh, not really produce much less and less and less. And it gets to the point where they're almost doing nothing, but they seem to have these full-time learning positions. Wow. I ran into a couple of people who have just found this nice little niche and did a lot of work at the beginning, built a really great program and then sort of wrote it for a year, two years, three years and that kind of thing. And I've gone into these organizations and said, well, what's going on? What have you done lately? Oh, I own this orientation program. Oh, Okay, tell me what you're working on right now. Oh, we're reviewing the feedback from the last section and figuring out what's, well, what are you doing? What have you been doing for the past three months on this project that we've been paying you for? Well, I've been, you know, monitoring and saying, okay, so it's a, it's, it's kind of, there's certain people who can find a little niche in learning and it comes right down to there are people who get learning and people who don't get learning. Mm. And I think the people who get learning, um, are like you in the fact that they put the learners first. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I don't think that a lot of learning people intuitively do. Because mm -hmm. if you, if learning, for example, reports into an IT department, you know what's going to get built is the IT training. That would be the first thing. There could yeah. be other needs in the sales department in an organization. There could be needs in HR and that type of thing. But because mm -hmm. it reports into the into that function, that's yes. where it's going to sit. And you know, it's a uh, it's just this malformed rant. I can't put my finger on the professional piece of it and where, where it should fit even like, yeah. 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 So what I'm hearing and I'm just going to play it back cause I, I heard a couple of key points in there. Yeah. So I've seen similarly and John, if I'm really honest, I've also been that person that's kind of pooped all over other people's work. Like I've definitely done it. I own that. I'm not proud of it. 
um, I resolve and have resolved to never do it again um, because they did the best they could in the context that they had. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm jumping into that environment, it's because I can bring something new into that space. But if the something new in the learning and development space ultimately gets to be a, a destruction or a subversion of what was done, that doesn't demonstrate my professionalism, right? And so what I hear in what you're saying is it's a call to learning and development professionals to really show up in support of each other and to show up in support of the discipline. And because it is a discipline, learning, teaching, it's a discipline. And you gotta, like, personally, I think you gotta love it to be in it. <laughs> well, see, it, and that is a, it's a, it's part of the problem too, is that organizations sometimes don't see it as a discipline. Um, a, a perfect example, I was in an organization where somebody who was very clearly not a learning person, that wasn't their passion, and that wasn't what they liked to do, were given the responsibility for learning. <laughs> and they, there was one project that should have been a six hour project that took three months. Mm -hmm. like three months because it got wrapped up and we have a new learning management system that we spent all this money on and we have to use it and then this person isn't doing it exactly like somebody wanted and the, the level of detail wasn't meeting this non-learning person standard because there was communications implications and things like that too so a project that really should have start to finish from getting the content out of an expert's head to delivering that content to other experts so there was no true learning curve beyond here's a little piece it costs probably an extra thirty or forty thousand dollars, and it's because of something beyond the students. It's because of something beyond the learners. It's because of something beyond the other learning professionals who are all saying, "What about this? What's going on here?" And it's a, it's it's ego or something. Uh, you and I have spoken in the past about how there are certain professions <clears throat> like marketing. People say, uh -huh. "You know, I've seen lots of ads on TV. I can do marketing." or communications, oh, I've read lots of communications, I can do communications, I've taken lots of training programs, of course I can build training, I've flown on an airplane lots of times, of course I can fly an airplane, well, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> that one doesn't oh, quite work. It. But it is something where training, a training professional will come into a situation like that and say, you know what, this isn't the perfect solution, but it's a good solution that gets the learners from point A to point B, it adds values, it improves their life. It doesn't need to be this polished piece of perfection that people are getting fired over that takes three months worth of work and costs time and effort and stress and tears and blood and everything else when it could have just been this small little project on the side. And yeah. it's because somebody who forgot about the end users, forgot about the whole point of learning and got mm -hmm. it wrapped up in something else, some kind of politics or something like that, who knows what it was, it turned into a really, really big mess. It never needs to get like that. And professionals yeah. will keep it on track. Yeah. And I think professionals will advocate for results, mm -hmm. like real business results. And I, I hear you saying that. It's like, and you know, there's lots of things that really deserve a flashy front end, mm -hmm. right? There's lots of things that deserve that. And in a marketing campaign, I would offer that's exactly what you want. And I think there's a balance to be struck with learning professionals to not get too engaged on making it beautiful, but making it purposeful. And it needs to look professional and purposeful. Mm -hmm. But it's not always gotta be beautiful and high production value and certainly not today. Like, 
five years ago, 10 years ago, even it's like you and I worked together. We knew that there was like a level of precision that everything drove to. Mm -hmm. um, and the materials were, they were over the top. They were mm -hmm. fantastic. And don't really need that right now. You need professional <laughs> and well-written and well done, but they don't need to be flash and dash. Like there has to be substance under the hood that actually delivers results. And so I, I hear you and I hear us, you know, being called again as learning professionals, like is the substance there? Does it deliver on business results? Have you considered the ecosystem? Like those are all the questions I go to. Like, so you're going to stand up this new function inside of your business. And it's going to provide a service to the rest of the organization. This is an example. Mm -hmm. So as you stand it up, and as you want to get people trained, I'm using air quotes for those of you that can't hear <laughs> that I'm doing that. Um, just being facetious, I'm sorry. But like, if you're going to stand it up so that you can have people trained to be able to use the service to understand what it means, then what are the other pieces inside of the ecosystem that need to also shift? Mm -hmm. Because it's usually not just one thing and it's not just training that's going to get us there. Training just sets context for someone to behave in a new way. That's it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that they will. And if their system's not set up, like learning professionals need to extend beyond the borders of I just deliver training. Like that's what I hear you say. Oh, yeah. No, it's not just the training. It's not just the training. There's much more to it than that. And you know, it is, it is a full ecosystem. And once again, it's, uh, learning professionals are sometimes their own worst enemies because they learn a tool and they'll go, Oh my God, I love this MBTI and MBTI is the best tool ever. I don't like true colors and I don't like this one and I don't like the four pieces and I don't like all these other ones because I am loyal to my tool forever. And it's like, you know what? I think good. You found a tool that you like, that's good, but it's probably not going to be the right tool for everybody. Yep. It, just because you are the person who's the learning professional making the decisions and you love this tool, maybe technology has changed. Maybe there's been a lot of research. Maybe something's been debunked or something like that. So we sort of get our head down into this little box and say, this is where I'm going to focus my time and attention. This is the learning management system that I like. This is the instructional design company that I like. This is the the instructional design model that are like, I'm an Addy person and I will be Addy forever and everything else is just a bastardization. We get ourselves <laughs> in these little boxes and we miss out on it. And if you sort of open your up to the rest of the professional world, you'll have a better experience. And if you focus on the end user's needs instead of your own, you're going to have better training, better results. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, because, and I love that. Like I really, you know, I think the core of, what we're trying to share here in learning value has to do with care about the learner. Mm -hmm. Like that's where the value is. That's where change happens inside of businesses. That's like literally it's the hinge point. So if you don't pay attention to the learner, how do you think you're going to get the value out of the learning you've produced? Yeah, that's right. And you know, it, it could be something as simple as uh, I, I go back into my history and I remember that I, uh, I had a new director in a position and she evaluated some of my training. She said, I'm going to give you some feedback. Um, you need to read all the slides to people. And I went, pardon? You need to read all the slides to people because we need to make sure that they have heard this. I'm like, first of all, have you ever heard of something called death by PowerPoint? Because it basically <laughs> says, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. 
The thing you're saying to do, don't do that. And if all you want to do is get a check mark that says they have heard you say these words in a classroom, that's not learning. That is something that should be sent out in an email, quite frankly, and they can sign off on it because they'll get as much out of it. So you're kind of missing the point because you've put the compliance ahead of the learning. You've put the check marks oh. ahead of any kind of impact. Ooh, ooh, I knew we were going to get there. I just had faith that we were going to get to yeah, compliance training. Just a matter of time before it gets there. So <laughs> thus endeth my rant. <laughs> So, but what you said at the last part of your rant actually has to do with a piece that you and I have talked about. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure we have a, a similar opinion on, but maybe for different reasons. So <laughs> I'm going there. So I recently have had the pleasure and the privilege of doing compliance-based training for things like code of business conduct, that kind of thing, right? So every year companies have annualized processes to make sure that you're aware of um, the code, like the business ethics and to be aware of how we need to conduct ourselves. It includes things like respectful workplace. So I don't want to bash the effort because that's like, we just finished a rant where we said that that's kind of a crappy thing to do. So I think that that's a little insincere. So I'm not, I do have questions though. Mm -hmm. What are we intending to be different as a result of those compliance trainings? They're not. They're not intending anything to be different. It is a yearly covering of the butt by the company. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. The compliance training is you have read this list and you agreed to comply and you didn't get 100% in this training, you know, go do it again. Okay, now you got 100%. Now we can say to our whoever needs to hear this information, we have 100% compliance on our workspace hazardous materials training. Look at how good we are. Mm -hmm. Does anybody remember that? Well, the people who use it every day will. Yeah, so, and this is where I want to dig, right? So, like, why are we doing it in the form of training? Because here's what I do know, like, historically, compliance-based information, like your code of business ethics, was literally a document that you had to sign when you signed on with an organization. Mm -hmm. um, you might have been required to sign it annually that I think, and someone out there who's listening can correct me, but I think a part of why it became annualized is that we had you know, people that had gone through legal action and the consequence of that is that we're like, oh, well, we need to tell them now annually because they can say they forgot it because it was two years ago that they signed it. And so we're doing it to keep it front of mind and fresh, I guess. So I'm, I'm kind of with that, like to keep it top of mind, in which case it's, I'd rather that we didn't call it training. I'd rather that we didn't call it education. I'd rather that we just say that it's a communication that you literally click through mm -hmm. and answer a few questions so that we know that like from a knowledge perspective at a minimum that you understood the content. Mm -hmm. So I think I don't actually have a problem with them rolling out these communications. I'm using air quotes again, like a goofball on a <laughs> podcast, but it is a communication. It's not a training. There's nothing being trained 100%. You are absolutely 100% correct. There's no training that's taking place. There's no real learning that's taking place. There is compliance that is taking place. So I just happened to have done some research into this recently. The province of Alberta had something like 30 years without any changes to their employment code. And then they had a regime change of the politics of the province and all the employment laws got updated. 
And then that regime changed, changed back. And guess what? They updated the laws again. So no changes for about 30 years, but in the past five years, there have been about three changes. So okay. the changes have been taking place fast and furious. And there was actually some recent changes that, that have taken place with one of the most recent bills in the province of Alberta. So one of the reasons about doing the compliance annually is because of those little changes. But here's the problem. The people who are making you do the compliance training are not updating the legislation because they don't read it. So they're having you sign off on policies that are old training because they aren't paying attention. It's like, yeah, we did the compliance training this year. Did you bother to update it when the overtime rules changed two years ago? Oh, no, we didn't, but we have all these signatures over here. So they do this compliance training, but they're hardly paying attention to the compliance piece because the compliance people think it's the training responsibility. And the training people say, well, that's just the compliance training. So it gets caught in this groundhog day of we don't know who is in charge of this and we're not sure who owns the content and why do we need to do the training every year if it hasn't changed, but has it changed? So when it comes right down to it, it gets into this feedback. Yeah, what I heard in that though is that the content did change. It did. And we didn't update what those groups would call training and I would refer to as a communication effort Yes. to make people aware of the changes. And I, I truly believe like the things that I wouldn't want to see in the learning and development space ever, ever again, if only for hosting and for records management, would I ever want it to be associated with an LMS, but it's a communication. It's there's no learning taking place. Well, um, on the plus side, LMSs are built for that type of compliance training. Exactly. That's exactly where they got their roots from. They are perfect that you get a check mark for doing this training, and that's what they excel in reporting on, is this training was done or not done. This portion of it needs to be pushed here, and this has to be pushed here, and this has to be pushed here, and we can track all the completions. And at the end of the day, that's really all an LMS does is tracks completions. Mm-hmm. If you think about what else does it do? Well, we can send out quizzes. Well, there's another application for that. There's mm-hmm. third-party apps. Uh, videos, you can put videos on your internal webpage. Audio files, you can put audio files in your internal. Text, everything can be that is in the learning management system can be put on a regular web page, except for the tracking piece. So that tracking piece right. is really the only reason they exist. Or even put it into Microsoft Teams for those companies that have Teams. You can put all of that stuff into Microsoft Teams and have it completely integrated in the one application that a lot of companies are using right now. So it's not that far away. And I would offer that that's the same for things like Slack. So there's lots of different ways that they could accomplish it, I guess. So, you know, I'm saying that compliance is a communication. So like Mm -hmm. the code of business ethics, all that fun stuff. So what would it take for the code of business ethics to be turned into a true learning experience? Like what would need to shift? You know, for a true learning experience, I mean, Mm. people's code of ethics, isn't that a very personal thing, wouldn't you say? That's interesting. I haven't thought about that, okay. If if you're gonna teach somebody a code of ethics, is that something that I can even teach you, a code of ethics? Can I teach you to be ethical? Can I teach you to be an ethical practitioner? No. No, but you can, you no, I, I, I don't think you can teach me ethics, but I do believe you can teach me emotional intelligence. Mm. I do believe that you can teach me what it is, why we need it, and then actually surface some awareness of my own emotions mm. and how I'm assessing or recognizing the emotions of others. So I think that there's skills and capabilities mm. that you can teach, 
that can elicit your own set of values and your own awareness of yourself to be able to conduct yourself appropriately. And I guess that's where I get hung up, right? Because we have this compliance approach and we don't always have the self-awareness to even, so you can have a respectful workplace policy till you're like, till the cows come home. You can have a respectful workplace policy, but in practice, in lived experience, mm -hmm. what are the things that create a respectful workplace? Yeah. Cause it isn't the policy. The policy is only the expectation, but then what, what's the responsibility on the organization to create and teach what respectful looks like mm -hmm. and not just by the leadership, but also like structurally, what does it look like? What do, what does a person have to have inside of them? in order to be respectful. Mm -hmm. And when someone is disrespectful, what does that look like? How do I deal with it? I'm like, imagine someone who's 20 some years old and they're a software developer and they've been living with mom and dad. Like, I'm not saying that this, any of this is bad. It's not bad, mm. but that's some of your audience. And how does that learner learn what it means to be respectful? Who knows what their background is? Yeah. How are they gonna bridge that gap? So that, that's one of the other questions that's behind it. Sorry, go ahead. No, you know, those, those topics like being respectful and your code of conduct and your personal ethics and things like that. You asked, how can we train that? And I think the answer is you can't really, but you can give people the expectations. You can give people the, the rules of your organization. But mm -hmm. if it, you're going to teach somebody about ethics, you need to understand their ethics. You need to try and see if there's points where you can merge. You have to see if there's a Venn diagram of here's all the things that I believe and here's all the things that you believe. And how do we find that middle space where it's acceptable for us to all be together? I don't think you can teach a code of ethics to people and have them completely buy into every single piece of it, hook, line, and sinker. But I'm sure it does happen from time to time. But I think that people will apply them in their own ways. So it gets back to that. I can teach you our framework of ethics for and sure. how to apply the framework of ethics in the business world, which means you can't have a dinner more than this much. You're not allowed to take bribes and all the other things like that. We can tell you how to do it. Even though your personal ethics might be completely different, we're going to say, why are you working here? This is the expectation. And once right. again, that's not really learning. That's that transactional application of here is the compliance piece. Thou shalt not take a bribe. Sign here. Okay. Yeah. I love digging around these areas, John. And I, you know, for those of you again, that are listening, um, you're allowed, I encourage you to have an alternate viewpoint. And I would especially love to talk to, I don't know about you, John, but I would like to talk to someone who's like all hopped up on the value of compliance training and can put it into a frame that actually shows me and demonstrates that it's actually training and not just a communication and a set of expectations. <laughs> like, I'd be really curious to talk to that person. We could get hooked on phonics together and just be like, tell me more. But I think our opinion coming out of this such, like conversation is, yeah, it's a set of expectations, it's a set of rules, and you're looking for a broadband way to be able to communicate it and to validate and track that it has in fact been communicated and that the participant has in fact said, yep, I agree. That I mean, is the long and short of it. It's, it's in the title, it's comply. It's thou shalt. This is compliance. You are expected mm -hmm. to do A, B, C, X, Y, Z, and if you don't do those things, you are not compliant. 
there. It's not changing your behavior. It's basically saying, this is what we expect. You don't do this. You're on the wrong side of this. So it's yeah. very simple and straightforward. It's not really trying to improve you spiritually or, or broaden your horizons. I'm or saying, make you more aware. I'm saying don't take bribes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know what? I, would, I guess there's a part of me that just wants to say, so let's not call it compliance training anymore. Let's agree that it's a compliance communication being yes. delivered through a learning management system. And we're okay with that because it's the trackable authority that says to the board of directors, for example, that we have in fact validated that 100% of our employees and staff have signed off on the code of business ethics. We understand that this means that they have accepted these expectations and will live by them or will receive consequences to um, the degree that we're allowed to pursue them based on the severity of the request and the investigation that pursues. So I just, you know, I would love for learning professionals to maybe start reframing it and to stop calling it any kind of training or learning exercise. It's not, it's nonsense. I'm over it. <laughs> I'm happy. I'm happy to just be a delivery mechanism in the, the machine. And yeah. that's as close as I ever want to come to it ever again, like ever again, ever again. Yeah. You know, I, uh, one of the things that I, I, I put all my training through a number of filters. And one of the things that I, that I try and answer with good training, there's three questions. What, mm. so what, and now what, what, what's the topic? What's the content? What do they need to know? What is the information that's going to be a part of this training? Okay. Got that check mark. So what? What are they going to do? What's the expectation? What's their behavior going to be? So how are they going to make, how's this going to change their entire world? We need to answer that or else it's not really good training. And then the now what is, okay, told you what it is. We told you why it's important to you. Now we're going to tell you what you're supposed to do. If it's not what, so what, and now what, it's communications. If it doesn't have that behavior change piece, then send it back to communications. Yep. Yep. And I, I think the only difference between how you talk about it and how t I talk about it is what's, what is it? Why are we doing it? Mm -hmm. And what's going to be the change in the world? Yep. Right. So yeah, I love this. I'm so glad we got to connect today, John. I mean, yeah. I recognize that there's a lot going on in both of our worlds. And I, you know, for those of you that are listening, it's just, sometimes we just need to get things off our chest and I just feel better having had the conversation. Yes. Like there's a validation that happens like when we just talk about things as they are for us. Um, it is not about making anyone wrong. So like I hold no, like any kind of animosity to the past. I just recognize that there's places I get to take responsibility for and there's the way I want to be in learning versus the way that I maybe was in the past. So we can always change, we can always grow, and this is the invitation to grow. So what's the new opinion that's coming out of this conversation today? Um, any final thoughts? You know, for me, I think the one of the learning pieces that gets reinforced again and again and again is how important it is to make sure that you're paying attention to the the change that you want to take place. Mm. The change, if there's going to be some kind of learning that takes place and people's thoughts change, if there's going to be some kind of behavior change, you need to show them the different behavior and how it's going to be a benefit, things like that too. But there has to be some kind of a change and that line between communication and learning or communication and training is the course, the source of a lot of stress, I think. I think people really get confused by it because 
learning sometimes is a political beast and there's more than one learning department in an organization and yeah. projects get thrown back and forth and stakeholders get thrown back and forth. And it really becomes this weird kind of a mishmash. But when it comes right down to it at the end of the day, if you focus on the humans and you focus on the change, it's going to be good training. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I heard a future podcast on our primary partners in learning, mm -hmm. right? Like communications, project management, change management. I would love to have that conversation. <laughs> yes. We could have probably a full hour on you can't edit your own work. No, nope. I trust, trust me. You can't edit your own work. No, I promise you can't edit your own <laughs> Even though I have I have real life examples. Come visit me. Talk to me. I can tell you it doesn't work. No. Yeah. Awesome. Right. Thanks so much for being here, everyone. Thanks for joining us um, in our Ranty Rant Rant um, Friday afternoon podcast recording. And thanks, John, for always being great in the conversation. I love muddling through things with you. So it's it's good to be back. And thanks, Laura. I don't feel like this one was the most coherent of our experiences, <laughs> but it's probably going to be a lot of fun. So we'll see if our editor can make us sound smart. <laughs> or not. Yeah. I'm only of average intelligence, John. Let's lower people's expectations here. All right. Okay. I will also try and get up to average. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye.